and welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host, and we are talking about the monthly CPI figures released today, April 12th, for March 2022. And, you know, there weren't a, a whole lot of surprises in today's figure, and that's actually bad news because we were expecting something like 8.5% year-on-year to be the headline number. And the fact that there isn't a big surprise and that we're sort of expecting 8.5% is itself kind of some bad, scary news. Um, you know, if you had told me back when I first got into the finance business uh, back in 1990, if you had told me that we were going to someday see 8.5% inflation, I would have said, no, yeah, that's not terribly surprising to me because – Sitting in 1990, we could remember times in the not very distant past when we had had such inflation. But if you had told me at that time that it was going to be 32 years before we would see 8.5% inflation, um, that's what would have been really super surprising. So so I guess at, at one level, we should be thankful and look back at this uh, long period this long, remarkable period of fairly low and stable inflation. But we should also recognize that it, it was a remarkable period and that there were some sort of unique things that happened that kept inflation lower, even though money growth through a lot of that time was probably a little faster than we expected, um, than we would have expected to be consistent with stable inflation. And, you know, and, Eventually, the Fed sort of lost their self-control and started responding to monetary or to non-monetary accidents with monetary corrections. Um, when we talk about the tech bubble, we talk about the the global financial crisis, and then pretty much daily since the end of the global financial crisis, uh, and of course COVID. You know, these were all non-monetary accidents, and they were treated with monetary medicine, and. And it, it took a while, but we eventually got what you sort of expect in that circumstance. And it, it took some orders of magnitude, took some other things happening, but we did eventually kind of get there. Uh, let's talk first about the number today. Um, so the core inflation rate ended up being month-on-month 0.32%. Month, uh, now, that was lower than expected. We kind of went in expecting about a half percent on core inflation. And so that sounds like good news at first. Uh, But we also kind of expected that used cars were going to be a bit of a drag um, in this month's number. Now, remember, remember, used cars on the way up um, was a big reason that numbers, that that inflation initially jumped a lot. And, And actually, that was part of the whole argument that inflation might be transitory is that people said, well, gee, it's just used cars. So now that used cars prices are, you know, flat to down, you know, they're not going to suddenly plunge, but they did, they have gone down a little bit. Um, We shouldn't now suddenly think that, well, that's going to reverse inflation. It wasn't that used cars pulled up all other inflation. It was just that they were sort of the first mover indicating sort of this underlying uh, upward pressure. And and unless they do really plunge, we shouldn't take a, a, a slowdown in their increase as being some indication that, oh, 
it's over. Now we're suddenly everything's going to calm back down. Um, at the same time, used cars were the drag, actually. So if you took, if you take out food and drink, that category, and you take out transportation, uh, which has a lot of the energy stuff as well as cars, um, then, then inflation uh, outside of basically food, energy, and cars was up 0.57% or so. That's sort of back-of-the-envelope math uh, that I did, um, which is roughly in line with where core inflation recently ha has been. Now, we, that doesn't mean I – mean, I, I don't really believe you should just take everything X – but the point is trying to see whether the underlying trend has changed because it, it, it has changed from when we were going at one and a half to two and a half percent per annum year after year after year, you know, in, during the glorious 2000s. Um, and now the equilibrium level looks more like three and a half, four, four and a half, five. Um, you know, we had gone five, four or five months, something like that, with core inflation being around 0.5% every month, actually fairly stable. And 0.5% per month would give you 6% per year. That's a little higher than I think equilibrium is, but it, there's pretty decent evidence that equilibrium is no longer around 2%. Um, airfares were up 10.5% month on month. Lodging away from home was up 3.3%. Rental uh, car and truck rental was up 11.7. Those are all month-on-month numbers. Um, new cars were up 0.2%. So again, if we want to play the X game, we can start taking out all of these things. Um, most of those are smaller figures, except for new cars, uh, than used cars, uh, smaller weights in the, in the index. Um, food and beverages were up 1% month-on-month. And eight and a half percent year on year. Um, your food bill being up nearly ten percent year on year has great repercussions in in different ways. Ordinarily, one of the reasons we take out food and energy from from inflation when we're looking at them, when we're trying to analyze them, is that they are they tend to be mean reverting. And so, if you want to guess next year's inflation, and you start with food and energy being really high today, then your best guess for next year isn't that you'll, you'll still be high because food and energy tend to mean revert. Your, your best guess would be that inflation next year, headline inflation, would be low. Except that doesn't help us very much. That's not the sort of – we want to know what the underlying basic trend is, and that's the reason we take out these really volatile categories. But when you have extended – uh, rises in food and energy, two things happen. One is that they they tend to eventually then feed back into inflation expectations because these are things that are bought frequently and by everybody. And so and so they tend to have a greater weight in terms of how you perceive inflation. Um, and and the other thing that happens is that you know those are things which everybody must consume. And so depending on where you are in the, in the income ladder, um, it can have a really huge effect on you. So if you think about the, th the three things that are causing big problems right now for the average American, food, energy, housing, um, and all of those things have a great – cause great pressure uh, then on wage demands. 
And so if you want to create sort of a feedback loop, the way you create a feedback loop um, isn't by saying used car prices go up, therefore everyone demands higher wages. But when food and energy start to go up in an extended way and rents go up, that's when people start to get agitated and want higher wages. And in fact, we are seeing uh, wage pressure and we are seeing wages rising around the country in ways they haven't risen in a very long time. Uh, speaking of rents, owner's equivalent rent and primary rent were both up 0.43% month on month and are both up about 4.5% year on year. Now, that's probably going to go a little bit higher yet, um, but it's not going to go to 18%, you know, where you're seeing housing price increases and things like that. They'll go a little bit higher, but they won't go. They won't go that high. However, they're slow-moving categories, and so, you know, if you think inflation is going to be back to two percent by the end of the year, I mean, there's almost nothing the Fed can do to make that happen. You know, these are slow-moving categories, and they're you know, inflation is just going to stay high there for a while, and therefore, overall, inflation is going to stay high for a while. Something in this report that I thought was interesting, and I've been watching it because for a while, is medical care. And medical care in the CPI doesn't have the same weight that it does in the core, in the, in, in the, uh, core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred measure, um, because the PCE measures um, everything that is sold, whereas CPI measures everything that is bought by consumers. You would think those would kind of match up, but they don't because sometimes the government buys stuff. And in fact, the government buys and insurance buys a lot of, of medical care. And so that shows up more in the PCE. Since medical care has been consider rising at a considerably slower pace than the rest of prices, that's one of the reasons core PCE has been held down. Um, but in today's report, the year-on-year -year medical care figure went up to 286 which means there's the only category, the only major subcategory that is inflating less, uh, less quickly than 2.5% um, is education and communication, um, which is you know, a, fair, a reasonably small percentage of the, um, of the basket overall. So the story has continued to be, and, and still is, about the breadth of inflation, right? It's not just about the level. It's it's that, that it, again, it's not just used cars. It's everything. Um, how do we quantify it's everything? Well, one of the things we look at is median inflation. It's just a better measure of the central tendency of the distribution. And that uh, is now at about 4.9% um, as of today's figure, and which is the highest level that, that finally exceeded the highest from 1990, 1991. It was sort of the last of the major indices to kind of get back to early 80s standard. And, um, and if you break it down further, you break down the distribution further, you see about 75% of, of the consumption basket is going up faster than 4%. And, and, and about a third, a little more than a third is going up faster than 6% per annum. So it's, it is, it's both broad and deep. And, uh, and that's obviously problematic. So, so that's where we are. Now, this is probably peak inflation for this cycle. And we don't say that because inflation is, is ebbing suddenly. But we say that because the, la the next three months 
from from last year, so the April, May, and June prints were were very high. I think uh, April um, uh, 2021 was 0.86% on core, something like that. That's we could we could get above that, but that's a really really high figure, and so and so it's much more likely then that the year on year numbers will start to recede from here. That's the good news, and it's entirely foreseen. Uh, the bad news is that, as I said, it's we're not going to go back to two percent unless the Fed uh, does certain things, which I'll talk about in a second. We're going to go back at the end of this year. We'll probably be four and a half or five percent still. A lot of that coming from rents, but there's plenty of other things going on, and and um, uh, and there's sort of this this delayed the delayed pressure from the money supply growth that's still washing through the system. And by the way, that's sort of one way to think about where things need to go, where prices have to go, kind of um, uh, when when we're all when all is said and done. We've had M2 money supply go up about 40% since early 2020. And, and so some of that has gone into actual growth of the economy. But if you subtract that out, what that basically says is you'd expect to see prices overall, on average, about 25 or 30% higher now than you did in 2020, early 2020. Um, because there's a lag, that's one of the reasons that velocity kind of plunges initially is that there's this kind of this, this lag that happens as people gradually experience shortages and adjust prices when the shortages are, are ameliorated. And, and so, but if, if all prices were 25% higher, you'd say, okay, if M2 just stops growing, then, then the price level has fully adjusted. So part of what we, we still have going uh, going to happen over the balance of 2022 and into 2023 is just the delayed effects of that of that vast increase in, in money. And so, what does the Fed need to do? What would the Fed need to do if they really want to 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 crush both the inflation mindset, which is now percolating into everything, um, but also actually crush inflation in the un, the fundamental underlying dynamic? Well, the underlying dynamic is that you're printing a boatload of money. And so the first thing you need to do is to uh, stop the growth of money. And, and moreover, um, because there's so much more money in the system than banks need to support their lending, we say banks are not reserve constrained, they can, even if the Fed starts to pull back and shrink its balance sheet, it's not going to have any impact on the lending activities of banks. They're just simply not not constrained by that. And so there'll be the amount of lending, the amount of growth in the money supply is, is, a, is going to be driven by loan supply and demand, um, which has a little bit to do with interest rates, but not nearly as much as you might think. I mean, if you, you don't like 5%, you don't like to borrow money at 5% as much as you do at 2%, but buying money at or borrowing money at five percent when inflation is at eight still looks like a pretty good deal, and so and so those those real rates would need to go up quite a bit further before before you would really see loan demand really dry up. So the Fed is not operating on the margin, and in order to operate on the margin and be able to directly affect money supply growth, they need to shrink the balance sheet not by sixty billion a month, but by a whole heck of a lot. 
The problem, of course, is that if you shrink the balance sheet by a couple of trillion dollars, then all of the things that you bought with that with that money supply growth, with that with that balance sheet growth, you know, main, namely much higher asset prices, those things all go into reverse, and those asset prices start going down a lot. And you know, moreover, as you also raise interest rates, by the way, these don't necessarily have to go together. You could you could shrink the balance sheet a lot and not aggressively raise interest rates, but but that's what they're doing. If you also aggressively raise interest rates, then you're also going to cause the economy to slow um, as well. And so you're going to end up having, you know, a circumstance where you have asset prices going down and you have the unemployment rate starting to go up and inflation still high. Now, what happens then? Is the Fed still going, is the Fed going to pull a Volcker and continue to tighten, continue to shrink its balance sheet, continue to sell to actively maybe sell bonds from its portfolio into that kind of environment where people are losing their jobs and the stock market is down 40% from its I don't I don't think so. I, I don't believe that that this Federal Reserve is cut out to do that. And partly because it's public in a way that it wasn't in the early 80s. And the Fed goes in front of the microphones all the time. I think it's unlikely that that what needs to, that the Fed can do or is willing to do what needs to be done. It's very easy to talk about it. It's very easy for them to say they're going to hike rates 250, 300 basis points and start aggressively shrinking the balance sheet. We'll wait and see once they start seeing the effects of that. Uh, I continue to be of the belief, although I will say I didn't expect they would have a 50 basis point hike in them. And right now it looks like they're on track for a 50 basis point hike at the next meeting. So they're, they're already being a little bit more aggressive than I thought they would be. Um, but I, I really don't think they're going to be as aggressive as the market seems to think and as they seem to be telling us they want to be because they're not doing it in a vacuum and the rest, the markets themselves will, will not let them do it. And that really, I think, is the uh, is the bottom line here for the Fed. So the last point I want to make here is that, um, and this kind of goes back a little bit to the used car thing. Um, I think it's important in, in talking to people, I, I find that um, we tend to confuse the micro and the macro part about inflation and, and about markets. When you look at what drives the price of used cars, you can very easily look at supply and demand. Okay, there's a supply of used cars, much of which comes from uh, from rental car agencies, um, and there's a demand for used cars. And, and you can look at what happens to the price and figure out whether, it's, whether it was the supply curve that moved or the demand curve that moved. And, and, and we know that if supply is constrained, that that causes prices, prices to go up and quantity uh, sold to actually go down. And if it's a demand curve shift, then that causes the quantity to go up and, and prices to go up. Anyway, but that's a micro question. And when we're looking at that, we tend to not see the overall, the aggregate price level as being important to that. What causes the price of uh, you know, fresh flounder at, at the at the store. I don't know why I came up with fresh flounder right there, but uh, 
what causes the price of fresh flounder to move at the store is is at some level affected by the overall level uh, the overall price level and the amount of money in the economy. But we don't think about that at the very micro level. Um, so, but at the macro level, what causes the overall price level to move is almost entirely money. And so when you're thinking about, well, how does inflation come down or, or why won't it come down? And you think about, well, you know, gee, we're gonna we're gonna improve the the uh, you know, these bottlenecks at the ports, and and uh, and so that's going to to lower the, the supply side pressure, and that's going to make prices go down. That's a micro response. That's a micro analysis, and and it may be that when you resolve those um, uh, those bottlenecks, when you those supply uh, supply chain considerations when you resolve them that may cause goods prices to to not inflate as much but because that's a relative change in prices what that probably means if the overall price level continues to rise because lots more money goes into the system is that services prices then start to take the ball and move higher so that the overall price level continues to move higher but the relative price uh, price changes is is what gets determined by those those micro effects. And in fact, we are kind of seeing that, you know, uh, core, core goods prices are still up on, you know, on double digits, but core services prices are now up getting close to 5% uh, year on year and, and, you know, taking, taking the baton from the, from core goods prices. So just an important thing to keep in mind that, that don't get too caught up in the micro and trying to figure out which goods and services are going to go up in price or down in price and letting that sort of drive your, your opinion overall about inflation. Inflation is caused at the macro level, and it's these little microeconomic uh, ebbs and flows just sort of confuse things um, when you're sort of thinking about inflation generally. And, uh, and that's all that I have to say about this month's CPI report, and I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, you can contact me at um, inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. I've been getting uh, some emails recently, and they're, they're delightful to get, and I, I respond to as many as I can. Uh, you can follow my blog at mikeashton.wordpress.com. You can follow me on Twitter at inflation underscore guy. You can download the Inflation Guy app. You can visit Enduring Investments to see what it is that we do, and it has to do inflation. That's with inflation. That's kind of the... Um, that's a you know, spoiler alert. Um, but most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. <laughs>